Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Talk. Welcome to Book Talk. I'm Erica. And I'm Katie. Just- Book Talk is... Oh, God. Am I, just, I didn't know if you were going to say something else or it was such a long pause. Like, was I was just a dramatic Was there pause. a line that I didn't know? Okay, do it again. Book Talk is a weekly podcast where we read a section of a book and we read a section of a book separately. We come together and we talk about it. And I'm not good at explaining that, but I try every week to do it slightly differently. Um, this week, we're reading the third section of Good Neighbors by Sarah Langan. We have read it. Oh, my goodness. But we're about to talk about it, and I can't wait. This book, oh, my gosh, the drama. In this section, we start with Peter, one of the neighbors, watching the mob attack the wilds, and then we find out that Gertie and her baby are doing physically okay, but Gertie is really struggling mentally. In the meantime, back on Maple Street, the Rat Pack tries to recant their accusations against Arlo, but their parents just double down. Detectives start questioning Rhea, and her family is clearly falling apart, as are many others. Peter visits the Wilds to warn them and give them a gun. Gertie comes up with a plan to try to find the pain box inside Rhea's house, and we end the section with someone turning on a light and finding Gertie in the house. It was such a cliffhanger. I can't believe you randomly picked that. I know it's can we talk about like immediately who we think that is because I think that's going to change the entire like next section I think it's Fitz is it Fritz yeah (laughs) (laughs) I think it's Fritz but I do think that his name should be Fitz so while we're on that topic like why Fritz okay yes I think it's her husband who do you think it is I like the idea that it might be Fritz because in this section we have Fritz trying to open up to Rhea about how sad he is at the loss of Shelly, like his daughter. And she is just like, you didn't even know her and you didn't raise her. Therefore, like you're not allowed to be sad. And I wish you were dead. Okay. Yeah. Rhea's a psycho. I mean, I get her immediate anger towards that because I feel like she's like, I don't have time to be sad. Um, because, you know, I'm plotting the demise of someone else's family, but she's like, I don't get to be sad about Shelly because of all this going on and you get to be when you never had to like deal with the hard stuff. But also we know Rhea and Shelly's relationship was like extremely problematic. So I feel like her lack of sympathy just lines right up with that. Right. And it would be nice from the path of the story if Fritz and Gertie were able to like team up to bring Rhea down because like Fritz obviously knows more about Rhea than almost anyone else the other thing is it could be Ella their daughter but I don't know how she would react if it's FJ worst case scenario I, yeah I don't know though I feel like is FJ worst case scenario I feel like he was kind of wrapped up in the like the other kids were too and the mob of their parents and in these like authority figures and FJ obviously threw the brick but he obviously is also still a kid and like was influenced by these adults and especially his mom Um, and I mean he's really struggling with the fact that he hurt Gertie and he feels really bad and like concerned for her and his mom has to talk him out of that concern because she's you know evil but I don't know I feel like maybe he would also team up with Gertie I would have believed that if we didn't have 
Peter's story about coming home and finding out that all of his mirrors were shattered and someone had written snitch in shit on the mirrors. So I think that conversation with Raya between Raya and FJ has completely pushed FJ essentially into like tripling down on that's what uh, that's happened. a good point. In my head, I was still assuming like even though he did that, he would he's but I guess the snitch in shit was after he had his whole breakdown with Raya. And so I feel like, again, what he like probably learned from his mom is like, you just need to stick to your guns here. Like, it's not the only way out is by sticking to the original story and believing what you did was right and justifying it because admitting that everything to this point was wrong and that you possibly could have caused this level of hurt is too hard. So instead of admitting that, instead of being like, well, what I said and what I did and what all these kids said could have ruined somebody's life. They're just like, well, it had to have been right. We couldn't have done that. Yes. And I think Rhea also is like a master manipulator because she turns Shelly's death and the loss of Shelly into justification for forcing FJ to be violent against Peter because she says, like, if you really love her. Oh, my really God. That her, part then you'll take care of Peter and like that will essentially make everyone whole. And I think FJ just internalized that and is, I'm thankful that Peter is leaving. I really appreciate this section focusing more on Peter and his story. I think it's really interesting to compare like the destabilization of people who've like been in something like a war or in like a very destabilized area where then you start to distrust things that you see in reality where he's like, is this happening? Like, I can't, I'm not in Iraq. Like I, is there a, really a mob with painted faces in front of someone's house? And like the whole time he's the only one who can act in this um, time of chaos. We mentioned this a while ago with talking about Dax Shepard and how he had mentioned like growing up in chaos and in trauma. He's like very good at acting in chaos and trauma so I do think Peter's past also gives him unique skills to like do the right thing when everybody else seems to either be like completely paralyzed or following Rhea just and justifying it after the fact to themselves. Right. I think that, you know, a lot of what you hear about war veterans, like when he comes home, he's struggling so much. He's obviously probably overutilizing the drugs that he's given for his legs, but he also probably still is in pain, you know. Who knows? We don't take care of veterans anyways. But um, I feel like a lot of it is like numbing the pain because he's so used to living in chaos. He has to be like, I'm not constantly under threat. I don't have to exist at this like extremely high level of paranoia all the time. And so I think the drugs can help kind of mute that because you're living in suburbia and it sh you should be able to calm down. There's not an IED on the side of the on the side of the fridge. What? <laughs> There's not, I don't know why I just said that. Well, there's not. <laughs> there's not an IED on the side of the road. Like this, these things are not constantly a threat. And I feel like you kind of have to mute the world so that it feels like you can exist. But then in moments like this, when there actually is chaos, that's like what somebody like Peter is trained to, yeah, like you said, to live through and to make decisions through. And I think his vision might be a little clouded because he's trying to figure out what's real because of the drugs, because of his history in war. But I think at the end of the day, he's like, something is happening. I can see it in their eyes. Like, I can feel the energy changing. These are people who are not going to do something good. And so, like, you need to be ready. And 
sensing that change is crazy because we know something bad is going to happen. Exactly. I also feel very badly for Peter because it's pretty obvious from anyone who's ever seen an episode of Law & Order that Peter is not a reliable witness and his testimony essentially would will not hold up against FJ. Um, and they already know that and Rhea already knows that. I mean, she already uses it against a detective that like, well, you know he has issues. And that part is also sad. I think everybody recognizes that and he realizes like he's he's been as helpful as he can be. The best thing he can do is give them a serious warning and a gun and Ugh. go to Florida. I mean, honestly, because, I mean, I'm glad he got yeah, out of there. I do too. feel that Peter also is is definitely under threat after, um, you know, what FJ did. Yeah, he is. Um, and I'm also glad he got out because I think at this point, you're right. He did everything he could to help. And he did tell the police everything he knew multiple times. He has warned them and checked on them and done his part. And it's not really safe for him either. The one part I thought was interesting when Peter was um, watching at one point is he was saying like he's watching these people and he's watching them do this kind of like, you know, act as a mob and really not be the people that he thought they were. And then he was like, I have to be careful because if I look too hard, I'll see myself too. I thought that was a really good, you know, back to Sarah's way of using one sentence to describe like all of these inner feelings and thoughts that have built up. That was a really excellent version of that. Last thing I want to say about like the Peter interactions with the family is we have a gun and there's this Ew, could you storytelling said that more happy like we have a gun. <laughs> well, I think this gives us like a pretty clear prediction of like where things are going. So there was an illusion in one of the like excerpts from either like a book or a newspaper article about like people getting shot. Um, but there's right. this. There's this phrase called Chekhov's gun, which refers to, like, if a gun appears in the first act, it will be shot in the third act. Essentially, like, there's no piece of a story that should be unessential. And so, like, when the gun appears, it will be fired. And that's just, like, a truism. I mean, it's not – it doesn't have to be the case, but usually. Like, even if it's not fired, they'll be like, oh, he got a gun. He was – like, it'll be used against him in some way, I feel like. Even if he doesn't necessarily shoot it, it might be, like – the weapon that was used for something else that brings him down. No, you're saying it has to be shot. I'll bet you a hundred dollars. It's, it's going to get used. Oh, I think it will get used in this case. I was just saying like in okay. the, in the theory of Chekhov's gun, could it be? No, no, it has to be it has shot. To be fired. That's so interesting. Okay. So it's going to be and shot. It, That's what we're saying. Yeah. Okay. We do know it's the Maple Street murders. So we know somebody else has to die. That's in multiple articles. Another painful part of this section is Gertie having like a serious um, episode mentally after being attacked, obviously because she says things happen to her at night. It's a very traumatizing experience. I think anybody, if you get hit with a brick in the middle of the night, that's just like such a destabilizing, terrifying experience. But what did you think about that section? Yeah, I can't even imagine how scary it would be in the one place of your house that you're like fully relaxed and asleep for something to like that's I feel like that's just like everybody's worst fear. Something to attack you in your room, your like sanctuary area of your home. I think um that you kind of see the strength of this family in this moment. Because Arlo has clearly been through I I think so. Like you see well, well you see okay. Well, like Julia, for example. I mean, you obviously see them falling apart. They're going through something extremely traumatic. But I think they're not 
turning on each other the same way these other families are. They are. Like Arlo obviously snaps at the kids and Julia's mean to Larry, but those are all like pretty normal trauma reactions. They're not like, I don't know. I think some of these other families are just like way, way crazier. I think their reactions are like pretty on par for some a family who's going through something this traumatic. By the part, I think they're strong. I mean, I think Julia kind of grows up in this moment. She's no longer like the kid when she reacts to Gertie. She walks over and she's like, Gertie says, I'm okay. And whether or not Julia believes her and whether or not she thinks things are going to be okay, she's just like, okay. And because I feel like she has to grow up in that moment and be like, well, the only option is to like believe her because she's my mom and kind of not really be the kid anymore who's really just blindly believing their reassurances. Maybe that's not strength, but it's like growing up. Um, And I think like her Arlo is like, doing the best he can to like stand by her and almost not like normalize it, but not, I don't know. Like, I think he's obviously kind of keeping himself as a, at a distance from her when he's in there, but I don't think he is like alienating her either. I think like the family is, is completely falling apart. I feel like Arlo is not supporting Gertie at all. He's doing his like classic, like if I pretend like it's okay, it'll be okay. Kind of thing. We have like this uncomfortable conversation in front of the kids where Arlo tells her, by the way, I got fired. Um, so we can't afford to move. There's nowhere to go. And then when they're alone. Which I mean, isn't Gertie's Arlo's like, fault, I want to kill obviously. all of them. No, I don't think I don't think it's their fault. But I think Arlo's not comforting Gertie the way she needs to be comforted. They both realize in this moment we are scarring our children for life. And there's almost nothing we can do about it which is probably not true, but they like are just dealing with so much. And then Arlo in the moment, especially with his kids, it's just too much. I think it's too much. I don't think any, I mean, there's very few people who I think would be able to get through this together as a family, but I think what's happening is like damage that will never, like they will never recover from. Yeah. I think what I'm trying to say, but I'm not doing a good job of is like, it's external forces that are forcing this family apart. It is not their willingness to be there for each other. It is like these other things that are pulling them apart. They really don't have control over that are causing them to fall apart, even though, and it's harder to watch them falling apart because you know that they're good people who are just trying to make it and love each other and do better for themselves and, and by themselves than they had growing up. And it's harder to watch them falling apart at the hands of everybody else than it is at these other people who are like also falling apart at the hands of everybody else. But it just seems like a little bit less innocent. Absolutely. It's also stressing fractures that already exist. So one way that Sarah shows this is when Arlo goes to hug Gertie, she like looks at his arms to see the scars, his uh, track mark scars. And she notes like, oh, you you really have to look for them. Like they've pretty much healed, but he has, I've seen him naked. He has other, like he wasn't just shooting up in his arms. And it's just such a moment of like, maybe I can't trust you. In just one sentence, it's clearly showing like this underlying point of stress or, you know, just this story that she has in her head about Arlo is just slight. It's just coming right back up to the surface under this pressure, which I agree is not their fault, but it's still right. Like, and it's that's very it's much still, just there. Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to get. at was really just that it's not their fault, which is which makes it more sad and tragic that this is happening. Um, 
also Gertie, like, I feel like I'd be stressed if I was Arlo too, because the things Gertie is saying when she's kind of having the mental breakdown, you're like, well, will she kill everyone? I'm not sure because she seemed, and it's not even, again, she's had such a hard time and they're just trying to make it. And it's like, it is heartbreaking, but also you're like, is there a part of her, if you're Arlo, you're looking at Gertie, like, is there a part of her that, that I don't know that I should be worried about? You know, is there something she's capable of that maybe I didn't think she was until now? Even though she's obviously having an episode and she will come out of it and, you know, but I don't know. I also need to process this preschool dean mom because I I hate her. <laughs> oh, I oh, that whole section with each of the parents just ignoring their kids and how desperately each of the kids is trying to be like Shelly was lying I never should have told you you made me say something that I don't believe and now I'm like really struggling with it and each of their responses was so frustrating but I agree the like the perfect mom who always seems like she's listening but is never listening was particularly painful I just think it's it's so cringeworthy because it's like these these like you know, respectful parenting. Obviously, I'm not a parent. So, you know, take this all with a grain of salt. But these like respectful parenting blogs and ideas where, you know, kids throwing a tantrum and you're like, I know that you really want this cookie and it must be really frustrating to not get what you want. And if you let me do this thing, then I will give you what you want because we're learning patience. And it's like, OK, great. Perfect. Um, and another way to say that is also just like you have to chill. Sorry, you're not getting a cookie. But I feel like this is like the epitome of what that's trying to teach in the worst way. Her kid is like, it's not true. And she's like, that must be really scary for you to feel like you're threatened. He's like, I'm not threatened. It's not true. And she's like, sounds like you're worried something else will happen. Like she's just putting words in his mouth and trying to like over, like over therapy, over be a therapist. I don't know, something to her kid, like overanalyze it almost. And it's like so frustrating to watch because you're like, you're not really even listening anymore. Right. Ugh. Right. This perfectly captures what I think is so uniquely painful about being a teenager is that you feel everything so intensely and no adults believe you. Like you're like, you don't understand. I'm in love with him. And they just look at you like, no, you're not. Yeah, you're they not. Don't you're care. not going to marry this guy that you just met and you chat with on AIM. Like you guys are not. Come on. But you're like, you don't understand, like, to me, to, to a teenage me, that is the most real thing ever and not, they, they, that is like one of the, that's one of my quintessential feelings of being a teenager is not being believed by your parents. And not only in this section do they not believe them, but then they spin this other story that Arlo has also attacked their kids. Which is just like, so now it's like completely spun out of control. But none of the kids are even saying that. It's so sad. It Yes, it's so crazy to watch this like from above happening because that is the worst feeling as a teenager. Like, you're like, you're feeling everything so intensely. And I think as adults, I would hope that if I have kids, you know, I won't do this, but I'm sure that I will because all adults do where you just, you're so far removed and you've gone through so much more than a teenager has. You're like, this just isn't that important. It just isn't that serious. But when you're a teenager, it is that serious. It just feels all consuming. And for no one to under, you know, it's, it's all the, it's the good and the bad. I'm in love or this is the worst day ever. Or you're so embarrassed. Like you feel it all a hundred percent. And it's, but I just think it's so interesting that like they believe these kids the first time. 
And then when they come back and they're like, well, actually, I didn't have good intentions. And this is why I told you the parents are like, oh, now we don't believe you. So it's like circumstantial when they listen to them, which I think is so frustrating. Um, And them weaving this other story, I think, is still just it all comes back to they made a decision at one point to be on Rhea's side. And that is requiring them to do a lot of weaving and storytelling and justifying and twisting of the truth so that their decision that they made to believe Rhea, which led to them throwing the brick, which led to them, you know, talking to the cops, that that was the right decision. Because if not, they have to reckon with what they did to this family and they don't want to do that. So they're just weaving this story. It's going to be harder and harder to untangle. So next week, we are so excited to have the author, Sarah Langan, to talk about this book with us. Um, I can't wait to pepper her with questions. One of the questions is, okay, so sh- now I have to talk the po- talk about the Panopticon because it's come back and we get to read part of Rhea's dissertation, which, okay, so the Panopticon, I'm going to give Professor Bailey is going to give like a two-minute Foucault two, interview. One minute. I'm just kidding. Okay, one minute digression. This is my TikTok version of Foucault's Panopticon. So Foucault essentially talks a lot about how power structures can create like social order by creating these norms. Essentially what the Panopticon is is this version of a prison where the guard tower is in the middle of the prison with all of the prisoners around the panopticon and essentially what happens is like you can't see the guard in the middle but you know that he has like 360 viewing of like everybody in the prison and the prisoners can't see each other but essentially because the person in the guard can see everybody else essentially the prisoners start to internalize the eye of the guard and that changes how they behave so this is how essentially like when you're under under someone else's power you start to act in ways that they want you to act. That's like very, very. No, that was good. It, that the was metaphor really good. goes on like many, many levels, but it's interesting to think about like the crescent of the houses and how this, like the whole is essentially like the panopticon. It's like the whole itself is like the guard tower and everybody is around it. But Sarah keeps using this. Uh, Rhea's dissertation is about the inverse panopticon and how everybody is watching the guard now and I think I would love to talk to her more about like how this metaphor is going to develop but maybe it's all of the neighbors watching the wilds I was thinking it was more like Rhea's the guard and everybody is kind of Mm, watching what she's like feeling they're being watched by her or need to be like internalizing that and then turning on Mm her we'll have to ask it I mean I barely understand this this idea so maybe I don't know (laughs) it's just like a theory of like power and surveillance and I think there's a lot of that in this in this like section and in this story about how these neighbors essentially kind of create this entire power structure structure and then all just becomes completely perverse and it's just I I think the layers of suspense that we're building through this book is insane. I can't wait to finish it. I'm so excited to see what's going to happen. I can't wait to talk to Sarah next week. Um, and in preparation for that, I want to know what your predictions are. Like, what is your what do you think this ending is going to be like? Is it going to end in the worst way possible somewhere in the middle? 
Are we going to get closure? What's going to happen? Okay. My predictions are dark. I think this is going to end. This is like a dark allegory. I mean, we have mentions of like Othello and I just think that the undertones are this is going to end in a dark way, but maybe we'll learn a lesson. So I'm thinking like Greek tragedy style, violent and Rhea getting away with it. And we're all supposed to learn about ourselves in the process. That's kind of my guess. Um, I think no matter what, I think the wilds are going to suffer some losses and they're going to run out of this town. They're essentially unprotected at this point. I see almost no way that it, that it ends peacefully and it ends with them, you know, in a position of power, especially because all of the future versions of the story are essentially saying like, maybe they actually did do it, even though it never got solved. It still seems like they could have been at the center of it all. The front of this book says it's a modern day crucible, like the um, review on the front of it, which I was thinking about, too. And I I like hypothetically knew what that meant. But I was like, what is it? What does that really symbolize? Um, upon Googling it quickly, there's like a couple of things. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, people who know things about <laughs> what this means, but maybe other people like me don't. Um, but the part of it that I'm looking at. I was just like reading about what does it mean or what does it symbolize? And one of them says it symbolizes the heat of the hysteria that takes over Salem during the witch trials. And I mean, that makes sense to me. Like it's this, it is this all consuming hysteria that obviously does not end well for anybody in Salem or on Maple Street. Okay. I also am going to spoil this potentially, (laughs) which is that the very first page before you even get to like the first section in the map is this section by Ellis Haverwick, uh, Believing What You See, Untangling the Maple Street Murders. Okay, this is what it says. We ask ourselves how an upstanding community can, can conspire towards the murder of an entire family, and we can make no sense of it. But what if we overlook the most obvious explanation? What if the accusations lodged against the Wild family were true? What if they had it coming? And I think that is pretty much Ooh, what's gonna happen chills but i wonder okay so i think yeah oh, it's not no. looking good for the wild family oh, but also i'm Julia. like oh i know who else is going to go down in this like i mean they have a gun is it just going to be a peaceful killing of this family probably not like i feel like i don't know i think it'll be too predictable for it to just end in the wilds all although jesus all of them dying that seems crazy um like she has a baby. Uh. I will say I love a dark ending. That's what I will say. I love a dark. I love like a Greek tragedy. I love when it's like the lights go down and we're all very sad and we've all gone through something. And now they're like, look at yourselves. Here's Erica <laughs> Bailey wishing to go through a blunder again. <laughs> like Why? <laughs> I mean, I want there to be at uh, this ending. Um, my mom is like asking about the book and I was like, it's right now on this like level of like the push where it's like extreme um like it's crazy to read and it's really like a thriller but it's also really dark and so I I mean I'm loving it so far um but I hope there's like some kind of and I think there will be some kind of like lesson or something that kind of comes out of this what is sure Mm -hmm. to be a regardless it's already a tragedy so I mean it can really only go downhill from here (laughs) I mean I'll I mean I'll tell you the lesson no don't tell me now I mean I know what the lesson is but maybe you don't know no no <laughs> oh the lesson is don't move to Long Island 
Is that the lesson? <laughs> I mean, obviously a huge kidding. mistake for everybody involved to move to Long Island. So it's not false. So funny. Uh, okay. Anyways, so that next week we are finishing the book. We'll be joined by Sarah to talk more about her inspiration for this book, what she wants us to get out of it, to explain the Panopticon metaphor for us more. Oh and I can't wait. We're only going to talk about the Panopticon for two minutes because I cannot with the level of importance that this is gaining. <laughs> wow. Okay, fine. Uh, okay, we can only talk about it in theory for two minutes. We also have one more announcement. Yes, our next announcement is our next book. Um, we are really excited to be reading Transcendent Kingdom by Yaw Jesse. Transcendent Kingdom is about Gifty, who's a fifth year PhD candidate in neuroscience at Stanford School of Medicine. Um, and she's studying the neural circuits of depression and addiction. Her brother, Nana, was a gifted high school athlete who died of a heroin overdose after a knee injury led him to get hooked on Oxycontin. Her suicidal mother is living in her bed and Gifty is determined to discover the scientific basis for the suffering she sees all around her. I think this is going to be such an interesting book about a Ghanaian family of immigrants who are dealing with depression, addiction, living in California, um, and maybe a little bit about religion, love, science, all Topics I love. So I'm so excited. I just read Homegoing, as you all know, if you listen to the pod, and I loved it. I think Ya is such a great writer, and it's very, like, poetic and moving, her uh, Homegoing. So I'm excited to read this book. And uh, more academia. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Maybe we can um, interview one of my friends in neuroscience. Oh, that'd be great. Um, Yeah, this book came out a year ago, and I feel like I've heard about it every month since then. So I'm excited to um, finally read about it. Read it. Talk, talk. So we are both about to leave for vacation. Yeah, I can't wait. I know we did a pod marathon in preparation for this vacation, but we're about to relax. I mean, I'm working on vacation, but okay, I'm about to relax in Mexico. Yeah, for like two weeks. So I think that honestly, <laughs> it's fine. Um, okay, I'm excited to relax, but and to actually not be working. Yeah. What um? Are, what are you excited to read on vacation? I got three. This is books. a book podcast. This is a book podcast. Um, I'm gonna finish Good Neighbors tonight, so <laughs> that'll be done. I'm gonna read. Uh, I'm bringing with me Salt Houses by Hala Alian, um, which is I've been wanting to read. It's kind of an older book. It's um, written in 2013. I'm also taking with me The Kitchen Front, which is a brand new historical fiction book. My mom and sister also love historical fiction, so I try to bring books we can all um Sharon Reed and then I'm also bringing Good Company which is by Cynthia Sweeney which she also wrote The Nest um which I thought was a little bit slow moving in the middle um but was overall like a good and entertaining family drama um that I read last year at the lake <laughs> so figured I might as well read her second one which again is a like drama um there what I was reading about today was like a domestic drama but it's like Three relationships, three different marriages. One of them's falling apart. There's probably a murder thrown in there. So, um, yeah, I'll let you know how they are. But then I'm still bringing the hospital, which I just read like 10 pages per day. Of. It's going to take me a year to read. <laughs> what are you? Are you taking books with you? What are you bringing? 
I'm going to take my Kindle because I'm trying to pack like as light as possible. So before I go, I'm trying to finish Animal by Lisa Teddo, which I'm loving, but I totally understand why other people don't like it. It's very like, I hate to say this in this way, but it's sort of like Bukowski-esque where like Joan, the main character is like a horrible person, but very entertaining. And it's very like sexual and there's like power differences and there's just like really really funny sentences and also really depressing sentences and I don't know what is coming a lot of it I think keeps the reader confused because she has this relationship with this person Alice but it takes a long time for you to figure out who Alice is and she keeps alluding to like you the reader but it's also not clear like am I a character like who am I why is she talking to me she's trying to teach me a lesson but I don't know like what that means so I think people don't like that and it is like very dark like Joan is an anti-hero she is not a good person and it's tough to be in her head but that being said I love dark books so I'm like yeah I'm into it. Mm. okay it's not for everyone yeah I don't know that it's but for it's me. for me <laughs> it's not for everything but it's dark and creepy perfect we'll take it <laughs> yeah it's kind of I mean we've been we've talked about a lot of like romance happy novels and I do like them but I also like going into like darker books now I like yeah. this like contrast I like being able to go the contrast to is decide key, though yeah yeah for me the contrast is yeah. key. I can enjoy a dark book as long as I can read a happy one after yeah all right. But yeah, so that's it. Okay. Yay. Well, have fun. You too. All right. See y'all next Yay. week. Bye. Bye. Book Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney. With production support from Dan White, our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week. This book and that intro, okay? We are ready. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>